Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. In the heart of Mount Albert, Auckland is one of the oldest gardens in New Zealand. The Sanctuary Mahi Community Garden was first planted by Māori in pre-European times and hasn't been built on since. The veggie gardens and food forest have been lovingly cared for over the years and flourished under the ownership of Carrington Tech, now Unitech. But they face an uncertain future following the sale of the lands to Housing New Zealand. Despite assurances, the gardens remain zoned for residential development. I'm taking a break this week, so I asked writer and sustainability expert Sarah Herringer if I could steal this interview from another show, The Feed Weekly. The Feed is a new show about the food industry in New Zealand, and you can check that out at The Feed Weekly on any of your favourite podcast platforms. And True Confessions, I'm on that show too. Anyway, Sarah spoke to curator Trevor Crosby about the community gardens. Take it away, Sarah. We're here today in the tool shed at the Sanctuary Gardens talking with Trevor Crosby, a retired entomologist who is determined to do what he can to save what he calls this hidden biodiversity jewel of Auckland. Trevor, I understand this land has been gardened since pre-European times. What's special about that? In 2007, about 12 pre-European gardening implements were found in the gardens. They are now in the Unitech Marae meeting house. What the shows is this piece of land has been gardened by early Maori and here we are in the middle of the city on this isthmus and there's very little of the isthmus left in which you can garden in any sort of size and quantity. Most has been built over and most of the important areas which were for Maori for gardening and for growing kumara have long gone and there's only traces left of pits and other things. Here we look at this space and say in this very small 0.6 of a hectare space we can actually do things and grow things as they were hundreds of years ago. Nowhere else on the isthmus can you actually claim to do this in such an area. And you know that for a fact because of those precious archaeological Correct. Tools that you found. That is amazing. And it's now a registered archaeological site. So this is part of the specialness of this whole area. Being able to grow in the ground, because it's never been built on before, in many areas, many community gardens are given spaces to grow where the soil has been contaminated. Yes, often like in sites where a building's been demolished or something. Precisely. An old car park or an old bowling green or something. It's been, the soil here has never been built on. Right, so it hasn't been degraded and polluted in the way that city soil often has been. I remember from my days of gardening in uh, Grey Lynn, it was clay and household rubbish that you would dig up. (laughs) Yes, well here uh, there's good volcanic soil and some of the richest soil, if not in New Zealand, in the world. We talk about nowadays having to retain good soil for growing food and with increased housing intensification, land 
becomes too expensive just to grow food on, so it said. But here we believe is what we like is grow local, eat local and eat seasonal. Here you can do it, at mm. least have a chance. Those are all very good points that you make, Trevor. So you've, you've got this really precious soil mm. and you've got 400 different plants and trees. Yeah. Just tell us a little bit about what the community gardens look like. So you've got the shelter belt around the outside. Right. It's hard to, for many people to imagine that only 22 years ago, this was an area of kikuya grass. So no clues then as to what treasures lay beneath? No, no, no clues, no nothing. It was just a space. And later on, I could talk about some of the history of the, of the land, which is fascinating. In 1998-1999, Brendan Harari, with students at Unitech, went to design an organic garden as a showpiece for how to garden according to organic principles, as opposed to the conventional horticulture, which has been taught at Unitech at the same time. They went in with Richard Main, who's now with Gardens for Health, they planted the surrounding protective ecostructure, these trees which would protect this site. They did it in a way with a whole variety of different trees introduced and native trees so that there was going to be flowers and therefore food for birds and insects all year round. Then they started to do the gardened area and they were doing it in a way to demonstrate on a small scale how you could actually grow food organically with rotation and look after the soil. For the food forest they did it saying a food forest is not just an orchard. So what's the difference between a food forest and an orchard for those of us who don't know? Right, for an orchard you have your trees that you want fruit from and they are usually very similar sized and they're all looked after and maybe having grass or mulched underneath. Whereas for the food forest, as in a natural ecosystem, there are different layers. There's tall trees, there's the mid-sized range, you got the ground cover, you got things that grow up, the vines. These all come together and the sanctuary was set up for Auckland, it's the first multi-layered food forest. Wow, so Auckland's the first food, food forest. Food forest, yeah. Wow. Yeah, multi-layered food forest. Right. Uh, within it, it was not only just food for humans, it was again food which could be also for birds and for insects, maintain their health for the environment. Also there were trees that could be useful for other purposes such as for timber, for firewood and other things. They started off with the colonizer species to get some shelter and add nitrogen to the soil. Uh, the, the poplar trees mm -hmm. for instance and uh, Tagastanti, the tree lucerne and they provided protection for the slower growing trees. And the orchard trees were not just the trees that they knew would grow here in Auckland at the time, but they also looked for other trees that potentially could grow, whether if the climate warmed, semi-tropical trees, or not just temperate trees. Some worked, some didn't. Right. The whole idea was this was a place where you tried things out. You weren't trying to set up a commercial venture at all. or So no mass no, planting. No one mass planting of the one thing. Right. This was to try everything out. And it really has, for likes of myself, having to learn a lot of things about trees which 10 years ago I knew nothing about. 
how they are used and the fruit, how do you do it. So it's very much a teaching garden, hands-on. And that was the other purpose of it. This was to demonstrate to people what you could grow, what you, how to use things to challenge people in many ways, of their thoughts of how they regarded what is food, what can you grow. And it's really also challenging to see how do you actually grow things and look after, because a lot of these trees and that require maintenance. And for the last 10 years, there's been minimal maintenance. We need to do more. <laughs> yeah. So tough love. Yeah, it is. When taken over by the community garden, it was not in good shape for the, the food forest and the gardened area. Kikuya kept growing. Tradescantia, so-called wandering Jew. Right, that's a nasty uh, weed yeah, that's, that's all over Auckland. All over. It gives a nice look, green cover, and say it is protecting the soil. But what is not known is how much it is actually taking away from the vigour of the rest of the food forest above it. Same as Kikuya. Remove Tradescantia and remove Kikuya and the plants, trees shoot away. That's what we've been able to show. Wow, but removing kaikuya is no mean feat. No, and we all do it by hand, mechanically, no sprays. Wow, so thousands of hours, all volunteers? All volunteers. Mm -hmm. And I should say for this space, there's 40 plus families involved, and it's a a space which has evolved over time. Mm -hmm. People have individual plots, do they? Yes, all community gardens operate in slightly different ways. We've actually taken the model of having small plots which people can grow what they want. We also have communal plots, large areas where we can grow things. And with these communal crops, we come together for working bees, perhaps once a month and some other occasions, to actually work together. We didn't want just an allotment system where people could come and garden and not join a community. We wanted a community. So we share produce from the communal garden. We also donate some of that to some organisations and Auckland Zoo, for instance. Each week we give a a crate of spinach and some other greens or things for the animal. Some of the produce from the communal areas we sell at the Greyland Farmers Market on Sunday mornings. This serves multiple purposes. One, it gives us some operating money because yes. it's all volunteer. To buy tools and things. Buy tools this year. Buy Even had to buy water and pea straw for mulching. Because you don't have running water anymore. We or... don't have running water anymore. And that's another all power. challenge. All power. So these mm. are the challenges which we're trying to work through right now. Mm. Just explain yeah. to the listeners, how is it that you've, you're without water and power? Okay. Uh, this is, comes back with the sale of the land to the Crown by Unitech that on the Crown-owned land for electricity just on two years ago, the main lead blew, got a fault, and it was too expensive to repair because it was going to be new electricity, new water infrastructure has to be put in for the new housing development around here. There was no point putting in several hundred thousand dollars just for basically a couple of years. Right. It's 
taxpayer money. Okay. <laughs> so you're, you're a bit in limbo with yeah. regards to that. And the water was a similar thing, a major leak going through on the Crown-owned land. It was costing Unitech a lot of money. Right. So that's been put on hold for the meantime yes. until the development happens. We'll come back to talk about the development, the big new housing development, a bit later on. If we could just carry on explaining to us about the, the specialness of the of the gardens. So you have experimental plots. You're growing something at the moment. Is it Coomera? What's special about growing Coomera? Okay, uh, we set up with one of our members' guidance, uh, Kenny, growing Coomera in a traditional way. And we've set aside an area to make the point where else on the Auckland Isthmus can you grow Coomera on a scale like this that used to be in the past? And it is set up a traditional way, so we've got three gifting mounds in the front. On the northern side, the gateway into the Mara Kumra is on the southern side, so you're not taking away from the sunlight in other parts. Also, the entrance is on the eastern side because the wind is from the western direction, so there's a little less disease potentially taken in. All these little bits and pieces how this was done. We've got several different variety of Coomera grown there from Māori times uh, and a lot of these are the newer forms of the Māori versions of Coomera. In the pre-European days you could actually just have a, a garden quite open for mm. the things and be quite safe. But your Coomera patch has a barbed wire fence around it. We actually had to go to fencing for two reasons. People don't respect the mana of what's going on. Some, and, some individuals. And, and, and some yeah. individuals mm -hmm. and still the people who take the food uh, from the area we know from records are those who, who are not the ones who need these opportunists. Right, so they're not stealing to feed their family. They're no, no, well they may be feeding the family but they've no need to. Right, so just explain about the setup here. It's an open facility? This is a completely open community garden. You can come here at any time, walk through the areas and it's a part of a walkway through Greenway to the Oakley Creek walkway. Mm -hmm. So anyone who lives in the area can come and have lunch here? Yeah, take any, a anyone can come through mm -hmm. and look. And yep. most people respect and enjoy the surroundings. And yeah. anyone can come and join the gardening sessions? Yes, anyone can come. We have plot holders and we have friends of the gardens. From the social media side of things, we, we run a Facebook and Instagram page and have daily postings just to be able to see what's going on right. in the area and what's growing here. What we do in some of the communal areas, apart from the Māra Kumra, it's a special area, mm -hmm. is the so-called Uunuku, the rainbow garden area. Since we do everything by hand, it shows that you can have like a rainbow, you can have curved beds nice. and have colour. Plants of every colour. Plants of colour or plants mm. of different textures, different heights, greenness. So you can grow vegetables for food in a way that's aesthetically pleasing and just gives the another dimension to gardening. Mm, so gardening. much inspiration. Yeah, and, and it gives ideas that I think it's for relaxation for people. It's something different mm. to look at. Yes. What are the most interesting or different plants that you have grown here over if the we, years? If we go to the food plants, always interesting is to grow things like 
peens. Peens? What are pe peens? Pe peens look like peas, they're new garden peas, but they're beans. These are Dalmatian heritage variety that we grow. They are like a, a bean that grows up stakes and they look like a little pea and, and you use them, they're good for use in stir fries. So Fantastic. The, yeah, beans that think they're peas. Yeah, that's right. They taste right. like beans. And yuckin? And yuckon is a, just another one of the little South American crops which has a tuber that you can eat in South America and is sometimes called a water apple. You right. can actually eat it raw and it's got slightly sweet. The sweetness comes from inulin, a sweetener. We as humans can't digest but our gut bacteria can. Right. So it's actually one of the foods which is sometimes recommended for diabetics. It's got a crunchiness to it like pineapple which you can use in stir fries and retains the crunch. Fantastic. Yeah, so there's all these things, but 10 years ago, if you asked me about this, <laughs> I wouldn't have a clue what this is all about. Yeah, so your area of expertise is insects. Yes. How do the insects benefit from being in the community garden? They benefit by having a whole lot of different flowering plants around. And what we're finding here is in many multi-organic gardens where it is multi-floral and you are not doing a monocultural type of just one major crop, the incidence of pests and diseases is lower than what it is. That's because the natural controls, the small wasps which need the flowers, need the things to survive, they control the main pests. Mm -hmm. So we have very few pest outbreaks. We do have some, right. but they're usually quickly brought under control. Mm -hmm. uh, we have more problems currently with rabbits, <laughs> rabbits than, yes. than with, with insect mm. damage. With the insect side of things, one of the interesting things to go for a community garden, a food forest, is and surrounding ecostructure. Some of our New Zealand insects have come back to the area. Uh, with New Zealand insects, native insects, most of them require the New Zealand native environment to live in. There's a few that don't, such as wetter, mm -hmm. and you get the cicadas, mm -hmm. New Zealand natives, they can eat many different types of foods, mm -hmm. and they do. You get an introduced species like the monarch butterfly, only eats one food, the swan plant, and there's quite a number of them around growing. But most New Zealand natives cannot grow, uh, cannot survive unless you've got the right surroundings. For instance, uh, a cover for closed cover. Uh, this was a, a colleague did a big study over in the suburb of Linfield mm -hmm. and looking at insects in the native bush and in gardens where there were native plants growing. And he was able to show that over over the time, over a thousand species of beetles, just beetles alone, and wow. of the native species, about 750 native species of beetles in that Linfield suburb, nearly all were confined to the areas of disturbed or native forests and native plants. Even when you had the plants growing in the gardens 60, 200 metres away, you did not necessarily get the native insects that you expect to find on those plants. Right. It's because the total environment was not right. Mm -hmm. Very small areas of native vegetation are important for native insects. Right. Many in the past was just thinking of in terms of birds, the area that you need to retain to retain native birds. Even very, very small patches 
of native bush are important for NCS. Right, so it doesn't have to be a big reserve no. to be beneficial, no, but you do have to have it. You do have to have it to yes. retain. Now, now, what is happening with the food forest here at the Sanctuary Mahi Whanua, after 22 years ago, it was basically would be barren for most New Zealand native insects. There are now some coming back. Wow going through, Fantastic. such as the bag moth going through, because the environment is right. Mm -hmm. we, we know that the bag moth is surviving in the area. If you look on some specimen trees around Unitech, which are grown in the open, you don't get the bag moth on it. Right. So there's all sorts of little things like this mm. which help to say this is becoming an even better system. And Even uh, better than a city park with large ah, trees. Precisely. Uh, you, you say, what is special about the place? And I've only catered for some of the small things that we talked about. Other things such as we've got rough patches around with growing grass. Small things like Unitech, small animals unit, come and harvest dock and other things, some of the weeds, because I know it's safe for the small animals. Right, they haven't been sprayed. Hasn't been sprayed. Mm -hmm. For the people here, after a working bee, we have shared lunches together. It's not just a group of people who just want to be interested in gardening. They want to do more than that. They interact with each other, a whole range of skills. And as our society president says, this place seems to draw in the people that are required for the moment. Right. So just to recap some of the many benefits that the gardens provide, there's spray-free grass provided to the zoo and to uh, students of animal care. It's used as a huge teaching resource for 60-plus families people can come here at any time and enjoy the beautiful surrounds and talk to the volunteers and learn more about gardening. It's a sanctuary for native insects that otherwise would be being decimated out in the big wide world. Do you have some other charitable connections or any other community connections? Yes, we do give a small donation each year to the Monte Cecilia Housing Trust. Uh, it's better to give money than to give them perishable food. We, we sell food at the Greyland Farmers Market and some of it goes to that trust. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are benefits to the wider community, which are hard to... Hard to quantify. Uh, hard to quantify. Mm. But the, the main thing is, uh, I think for many people, is just to have the thought that there's a space here they can come and have a look at where they... They don't have to come every day. They just have, have the thought that something is there, a space they can enjoy. Something beautiful and precious right yes. in the heart of the community. So given the prospect of a lot of the green spaces, open spaces being being um, built over, looking to the future, we've got this amazing resource, a biodiversity jewel, a refuge for people and for birds and insects in the heart of the city. How are you placed in terms of your status, the status of the land, looking at the potential for this huge development going on around you in way of housing, multi-storey housing. Like, how is, this, how is the land even zoned? Uh, at the moment, the zoning of the land is uh, undeveloped residential. Wow. So <laughs> I would hope that our, as in the sales agreement from Unitech to the Crown, that the 6,500 square metres will be designated as an asset by having a a protection put on it that is not residential. So at the moment the archaeological site is recognised as a place of significance but the garden itself, the soil, the quality of the soil, 
doesn't have any legal there's no, recognition. There's no recognition for that. Uh, but I think it's this recognition amongst people that it is important, but under the, officially at the moment, this is just a blocker, part of a blocker land regarded as undeveloped residential. In the longer, in the plans for this area, for the so-called Carrington development, the idea is to retain just under 40% as open space. This is not necessarily green space, but as open space, and that why they're going to multi-storied buildings for the area. But uh, we are waiting to hear for the future, uh, having discussions of how our, where our boundaries exactly are, how they're going to do. But we know in the future that people who are going to be living in this area will want to join in mm. and us. And maybe there's going to be, we can be the main area for which they learn to go to their own areas they have a smaller gardens close to their residences. This is probably uh, is planned within the area. It's one of the things which the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development, in discussions with Mana Fanua, had put forward in their Carrington development, and we're keen to see that happen. Mm. Oh, I'd very much hope that that becomes yeah. the case. Another angle is the um, is. We all need to b develop um, resilience in the face of climate change. We're facing this um, catastrophic scenario of, of, of climate, um, changing climate, climate, um, climate destruction. Um, what would you say a community garden like this contributes to our resilience as a city, as a community and as a city in the face of climate change? It is, we've actually, with the lack of water being cut off this last November, has actually forced upon us much earlier than what we were trying to do is get more sustainable and showing what you can do in the cases of growing when there's less water available. So there's brought in more mulching of plants and that's made a big difference to how much water you need for growing. There's the thoughts of too much of nowadays of just getting out the garden hose to and to sprinkle. For the last four or five months, it's all been by watering can here for from resources wow. for large areas, thinking that we're talking about cultivated area of somewhere about 1,700 square meters. That's a lot of water to cart around. But it makes you then appreciate the value of the resources that you have. Mm. And this is part of the community garden to go to give a better appreciation for the water that you have. And this leads back to why perhaps the tools, those Maori gardening tools were found here. It is close to the Wairaka stream. It would have been easy to garden and water during the times when the rainfall was slow during the summer months. Yeah, so there's a whole lot of things for the, the future, which for climate resilience. We, things were tried out here at the time, saying could they grow or not? And we'll continue to do that, to give different crops or different varieties 
to see, show the community what you can grow. You don't, not just the things that you get in the supermarket and, and the common things, but what else can you grow? What other varieties may be better suited for a drier period? Mm. What may be things, but also you take into a better account for what plants can you grow best for those periods where it's either dry or wet. So you aren't trying to grow plants that require a lot of water when there's not a lot of water around. Right, so working with the environment as it changes. Yes, and that's really one of the things it can do and that's where it's part of humans are very adaptable for the parts and that's what we just have to adapt to. Mm. It's the changes over time. Mm. Fantastic, as well as being a source of food in case of the breakdown of food supply or shortages caused. Precisely, and that's what one of the things that we do as a community garden. It's uh, uh, in the time of crisis and everything. Well, it's good to have a source of food around because most supermarkets only have food available for two or three days at the most. Right. And they may not be available mm. for in an area if you have people growing their own food around the things, it gives resilience. Mm. And life skills. And as well as mm. life skills, mm. as well as enjoyment. Makes connections. Yeah, and connections. Mm. And uh, no, there's many things that we uh, only now starting to really appreciate the value of having uh, green areas where the trees, the so-called forest bathing, for because trees give off chemicals which we uh, take on board and give you good feelings. So it's, it's nice to be out and about. You, it's one of the things that I think what you need to appreciate is with the green space is you don't need to use it every day but it's the knowing that it's there to use. That's the important thing. And that's where the community garden comes through as, as an asset for the things. It's not that it's a space where you go and visit every day. It's knowing that it's there. Mm. It's knowing that you can go as space to enjoy. Yes. Well, thank you, Trevor, for your time. Thank you for explaining to us about some of the things that are special about this fabulous place and um, I hope that um, many listeners get the opportunity to come and visit the sanctuary gardens and walk through the food forest and get some of that those good feelings that the trees are giving off. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website thisclimatebusiness.com I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.